Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. And then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the 532nd show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. John Barton, Senior Research Fellow of Campion Hall, Oxford University, who is going to talk about the Word, how we translate the Bible, and why it matters. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buff, Rick Sweet. So, to begin with, welcome to the show, John. We call, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. We call this first segment, Farouk Tanarun. And our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So, John, can you start us off with when the earliest works of the Bible were written, and in what languages? Well, the earliest books of the Bible in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible are thought to be from now thought to be probably from the ninth or eighth century BCE, not thousands of years before Christ, but. Um, that that sort of eight, eight, about somewhere in the 800s, 700s, which means more or less at the same time as Homer in Greece, really, that that kind of period. And the um, books of the Hebrew Bible, as the title suggests, were written in Hebrew for the most part. So there are a few sections written in Aramaic, which is uh, a related language. They're not you can't understand one if you understand the other automatically, but they are close. They're part of the same language family. Aramaic was a much more important language historically. It was spoken all over the uh, Middle East at the time. Um, and, uh, of course, became the every language of Palestine and therefore was the language of Jesus and the disciples. Uh, there are only a small amounts of it in the, in the Hebrew Bible, which is mostly written in, in, in Hebrew, which is a much smaller language in terms of its coverage. It was really only spoken in the land in the land, not not um, all around the Mediterranean as Aramaic was. I see. Can you? The New Testament, yes. of course. Sorry, mm-hmm. the, New, the New Testament, of course, was originally written in Greek, um, uh, but in the Greek, which was not the Greek of the Greek philosophers, but a kind of everyday Greek people spoke in the first couple of centuries BCE and in the first century. Okay. Can you talk a little bit, John, also about? For example, what is the earliest known version of the Bible, or the oldest known religious text in existence? The, in existence? Well, the oldest um, texts now of the Hebrew Bible are among the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, some of which come from more or less the time of Jesus, or possibly a bit earlier even. Um, before they were discovered in the late 1940s, the oldest texts we had were... Um, what's known as the Leningrad Codex, now called the St. Petersburg Codex, um, which is uh, from the 11th century of our era, so a thousand years later than the the New Testament period. Um, But the Dead Sea Scrolls, though, they show lots of differences from that manuscript. Nonetheless, you can see that it is the same work we're talking about. So it's been fairly faithfully transmitted in various variant forms. Uh, certainly from the New Testament period onwards. So, John, can you tell us a little bit more, like the history about when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and what exactly they discovered? 
Well, they were discovered uh, around the, uh, the Dead Sea, as, as the name suggests, in various caves. Um, and they, cut, they were discovered in the late 1940s and into the 50s. Um, and occasionally extra bits turn up on the antiquities market. And whether they're authentic always has to be decided, because sometimes could be forgeries. But the ones that were discovered around the Dead Sea are a variety of things. Many of them are texts belonging to the sect or religious um, organization uh, that lived uh, in, out in the desert uh, around, around, the Red sea, around the Dead Sea. Um, but others of the manuscripts found there are manuscripts of books that are now in, our, in the Bible. So they are, therefore, the, you know, the earliest um, texts we have of those books in most cases. Um, but they they weren't published. They had to be deciphered and unwrapped and dealt with very carefully. And they weren't really, um, for the most part, published except in a fragmentary way until much nearer our own time. In other words, it was some decades before they really started to become known. And I think all of the ones that have been found have now been read and, and translated. But that was quite a late process. And some of these who were given them to look at and read, rather clutched at them and wouldn't let them be published. They were sort of secret. Um, and they're, they're, therefore conspiracy theories grew up. They were, uh, they proved that Christianity was no use or something, and therefore the church was suppressing them or something of that kind. It turns out that there's no truth in that, whatever. Um, but um, when scholars get a, a new manuscript, they often take a very long time before they actually get around to publishing it. So that, that's how it happened. Okay. So 75 years or so ago. So, John, we have about uh, two minutes left, so a quick question then. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me, uh, with the translations, um, was there a change in translations after finding the Dead Sea Scrolls? I understand that one of the complete books was of Isaiah. That's right. There is a complete scroll of Isaiah, which is in the um, museum in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, that it has affected translation. There are um, dozens of places where it differs a little bit from the book, the text of Isaiah, as we had it. And translators always take account of that when they produce versions, now modern versions now, of Isaiah or um, other biblical books. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? 
My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. John Barton, Senior Research Fellow of Campion Hall, Oxford University. And we're talking about the Word, how we translate the Bible, and why it matters. Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. So, Rick, why don't you start us off? Thanks, thanks, Harry. Uh, John, you uh, want to follow up on a comment you were making about the uh, answering Terry's question in the introduction. You mentioned that uh, Isaiah was one of the books that was uh, found in those scrolls. What Whoa. other what other books of the Bible were mm-hmm. were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well. Almost all the books that are in now in what Christians call the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, uh, parts of, of almost all of them were found. The only one that there's doubt about is the book of Esther, which doesn't seem to have existed there, or that we haven't found fragments of it. But with Isaiah and one to other prophets, there are very large numbers of fragments and pieces of it. And Isaiah, there is a complete scroll, which is rare. But... Almost all the books in our Old Testament are attested there. Plus, of course, a lot of other books, which they group there, took very seriously, but aren't now in our Bibles. So, John, I have a question. What is actually the task of translation? How long does it take to translate the Bible, whether it be in English or some other language? Mm. Um, can you go through that process with us? Yeah. Well, um, I, I haven't done it. I've, I've written a book about it, which we're, we're discussing. But um, it, the answer is it's a very long task because um, it, it's a, the Bible is a very long book. Um, and um, it does take translators a long time. One has to distinguish between translations done by an individual. Uh, for example, in the ancient world, St. Jerome produced a version of the Bible. And at the Reformation, Martin Luther did one all on his own, which took a few years, which was an amazing achievement in such a short time. Nowadays, most Bible translations are done by panels, by committees. And they, they um, obviously distribute the work among different translators, so it can be done rather more quickly. Uh, but it is a, a very large job. In our time, the, most, the recent and most outstanding example of an individual is Robert Alter in California at Berkeley, who's produced um, single-handed the translation of the whole Hebrew Bible, um, and it's a very good and fluent translation. Um, but it does it is a long job, and of course the translators have to decide what kind of translation they're going to do. Are they going to stick very closely to the wording of the original, or are they going to produce something? as in the case of something like Eugene Peterson's The Message, which is a kind of paraphrase that tries to communicate the meaning to modern readers but loses some of the original wording. And you have to decide all that if you're going to translate the Bible. So it's a, a very large and lengthy job. Oh. Rick? Yeah, John, uh, <clears throat> on the uh, the translation, uh, I assume that your comment that you just made was there are some terms in the in the original documents or fragments that are not known to contemporary people. Uh, can you give us an example of of um, what original word or phrase mm-hmm. is that means nothing to us today? Well, I mean, if you take something like the Ark of the Covenant, 
that that's been uh, no, you know, made known through various films. But what the Ark of the Covenant was, people in general don't know really, and they tend to think it's some version of Noah's Ark. Whereas the two, uh, um, in Hebrew, the word for Noah's Ark and the word for the Ark are two quite different words. There's no connection, but they both pass through Latin into English as Ark. So people don't know what that is. And if you find, if you look at a version meant perhaps for children or for people with restricted vocabulary in English, which there are some of, you will find it maybe it's described as a box rather than an ark, because that can convey something to a modern person. And there are lots and lots of terms in the Bible which are not uh, familiar nowadays. And of course it's a world that isn't familiar in general. And so translators who want to produce something that really seems more relevant to their readers or the people who hear the Bible read in church will sometimes, sometimes vary the original wording to produce something which is more like a paraphrase but does communicate what the meaning is. So, John, can you t- talk a little bit uh, for us about the difficulty of translating biblical Hebrew? My understanding is that uh, biblical Hebrew was originally written in consonants, um, vowels mm-hmm. added later, and so you might have certain words that have the same mm-hmm. set of consonants yes where you'd have to determine the context, but that could lead to some maybe misinterpretations. Can you elaborate on that? That, That's quite right. Um, Yes, I mean, the the Hebrew manuscripts from the Z.C., for example, don't have any vowels. And the modern Hebrew, which is a a version of biblical Hebrew that's been revived in modern times, is normally also written without vowels. Um, So if you look at a Hebrew newspaper, it doesn't have any vowels normally. Uh, the vowels are marked by little dots and dashes over the consonant letters um, when you have them. But, of course, it means that there are cases where words are going to be ambiguous because, um, although very often you can work out what a word is without the vowels, if you think of, if you wrote a sentence in English with no vowels, you'd very often be able to work out what it said. Um, but nevertheless, there are going to be words where um, there are several possibilities. And Hebrew happens to have rather a large number of words that have the same consonants as each other. So you get quite a lot of confusions of that kind. Um, and the translator obviously has to attend to that. And sometimes looking at the translation, you can see, perhaps an older one, you can see that per- perhaps the person made the wrong choice as to which particular word it could be. Um, so that, that, is a, that is a difficulty. The, the vowels uh, were written in more or less in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries of our era, so um, long after the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were written in to preserve the tradition of how the text was already being read. It's not as though people couldn't work out how to read it and put some vowels in. It was a tradition of how the text would be read, but it was started to be marked on the text in that period. I don't know whether perhaps because of a fear that the tradition of reading might be lost or that people will make mistakes. So that's when the vowels, the vowel signs come from. But it is a strange, um, it's a last, of course, very strange to mark consonants and not vowels, but it was the norm in Hebrew and a number of other Semitic languages. 
Um, an example of that, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, because this is 50-year-old knowledge from when I was at the university. But I remember one of my professors and commenting that, like the word, the Hebrew word uh, for spirit and wind, have the same consonants. And so you look at the, you know, the section Genesis where it talks about uh, the spirit, you know, moved across the face of the earth yeah. versus the wind moved across the face yeah. of the earth. Totally different uh, <laughs> right. ideas. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Well. Yes, that, that's not quite the same phenomenon, actually. I, I mean, the word ruach, which we translate as either spirit or wind, is the same word. It's not two words, you know, which have got confused with each other. And that's very interesting because it means that the spirit, um, in the understanding of it in the Hebrew Bible, uh, is um, much more physical, in a way, than, it's, than it becomes in later Judaism and in later Christianity. Um, and you can't tell, in a way, whether it means a wind from God was blowing over the waters, or the Spirit of God as a kind of, what we would call a spiritual force, is hovering over the waters. It probably is both mm. for the writer of that, of that passage. That's a case where a word has a, well, what we could say is, it has a much wider range of meaning in the Ruach, has a much wider range of meaning than either wind or spirit does in English. Um, uh, but in other places, you certainly do get words which are confused because they are what we would call homonyms. They are they are um, words that look the same, but actually quite different words. So that's they're, they're two different, slightly different phenomena, really. Okay. The ruach thing is interesting because it is, it is a quite a physical idea of God's spirit. Sean, if I can carry on that line of thought, uh, if you have like the wind as opposed to spirit it is major difference in in at least a mental picture uh, how are these right. how are these i'm going to say contentious interpretations settled how is it mm-hmm. is it tradition is it what has been chanted for a hundred years in a synagogue or is it uh, uh-huh. uh somebody finds a fragment how do how do you how do you settle these contentious issues mm-hmm. Well, yes, I mean, I, I suppose that issue, in a way, isn't contentious about ruach, meaning spirit and wind. Um, I, what I mean is all translations of the Bible agree that it can have both meanings. Uh, which one you should use um, in a translation for modern readers is a difficult decision, because um, if you say wind, people might feel you're kind of reducing um, the text. You know, you're, you're, you're taking what it says and cutting it down to something very mundane. On the other hand, other people might say, well, when we say spirit in that passage, we're ignoring the fact of how physical the, the, the uh, description really is meant to be. And deciding between them in that kind of case, and in thousands of other cases like it, uh, is very difficult. It's a general phenomenon of the problem of translation, which my, my book is partly about translation in general with the Bible as a kind of illustration of that, um, that no two words in different languages ever exactly correspond with each other. And therefore you have very often to decide between various different possibilities. Well, John, what, what I was... Across the board. I was, I was thinking that, you know, wind across the, the land as opposed to spirit, 
about three four years ago, we had a 140 mile an hour Derecho that that uh, demolished six states, and that that could be the spirit of God. It could be. <laughs> could be. <laughs> I see what you mean. <laughs> right. Well, it could. It could be. The other thing people suggest is that when it says spirit of God, sometimes of God means um, well, we perhaps would say it means a hell of a wind. Uh, no, I wouldn't use the word hell in that context. I mean that that, it, that God is being used as a kind of superlative, you know, a, a, sure. a God scale wind rather than a human scale mm-hmm. wind. Yes, uh, and that's a possible interpretation of the verse too. Yes, and then we, it does become a bit like one of your hurricanes. Yeah, we right. certainly felt the force of that. That is for sure. <laughs> so, I had, sure, yeah. yeah, John, you mentioned that oftentimes there is a committee that's assigned to help with the translation. Mm-hmm. So, is there any debate yeah. about who should translate the scriptures and who should be on the committee? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I mean there are hundreds of modern. English translations of the Bible, it's extraordinary compared with many languages, there was only one. And most of them are groups formed by particular, normally Christian uh, denominations or, or churches or whatever. And most of the members on the commission will share the outlook of that body that appoints them. So there are a number of versions on the Bible, of the Bible at the moment, which are clearly of evangelical provenance, where um, the translators in some of the sort of more disputed passages in St. Paul, say, will um, agree that certain things will be translated in one way rather than another uh, in accordance with how that particular church or or, um, or, or group uh, believes um, the New Testament should be understood and read. So um, then, as it were, the the parent body, the church, or whatever it is, that appoints the panel will lay down rules for what it should do. And that's true if one goes back to the King James Version, that the King James translators in the 17th century were using lots of existing translations. They weren't making one from scratch. They say themselves, our job was to make old translations better, not to make a brand new one. And nevertheless, they were given all sorts of rules as to which terms they were to use in translating certain things, um, in line with the um, ideas of the Church of England at the time. Uh, so you don't often get translations that are, we might say, really neutral, um, produced just by people with an interest in the text as, a, as an ancient text. But normally, translators want to translate the Bible because they have a Christian or sometimes a Jewish commitment to it. But that often colors the way they translate the text. So you have to uh, be aware of that when you read it. Thank you. Uh, Rick? Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, one more time. Oh, yes. What books were found uh, or texts that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are not included in any current version of uh, the Bible? Well, there there are a number of texts which people often refer to as reworked Bible. So you get um, a a long document now known as the Temple Scroll, which combines passages from the Books of Moses, the five Books of Moses, which have all the laws in, 
with, uh, uh, or, or rather, combines uh, material from more than one of those books and reconciles it, where there are differences between the laws in different books of the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses, which there are sometimes, the Temple Scroll irons it out. And what we don't know is whether the Temple Scroll was somebody saying, well, this is how you could read the, the Torah consistently, or whether it's actually meant to be a replacement for those books, in which case it would be a book of very large authority for that group. But we don't know, because we haven't got any document that says this is how they understood the books we found. But there, so there's that. There's a number of rules about how the community at Qumran is to live, which are a bit like the sort of rules you'd find uh, for a monastic community in Christianity, saying you know, what time prayers should be uttered and what discipline should be if somebody disobeys and that kind of thing. Um, and there's also, uh, there are also apocalyptic texts, texts talking about the battles of the end time, the kind of thing you find in the book of Revelation about Armageddon, you know, that sort of thing, uh, and how the uh, sons of light will battle with the sons of darkness and there'll be a victory for God and those he's in favour of. So there are uh, quite a lot of texts for that kind. There are also some very interesting and attractive psalms, which are quite like the psalms in the Bible, but um, show uh, that they come from a bit later. But there are many texts there that some people think could have become part of Scripture, but didn't. And others think they weren't claiming that kind of authority in the first place. Mm. No one's quite sure. Yeah, I it's a large, a large number of texts. Mm. So, yeah, John, can you also piggyback off that question a little bit? Um, can you talk about a little bit more about the different versions of the Bible that we have out there? I know there's like a, a Catholic uh, edition, um, which includes, my understanding, is additional texts. Um, can you talk about That's that, right. please? Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, the, the, I mean, by the New Testament period, the, the, what we call the Old Testament existed in both Hebrew and in Greek, because most of the books in it have been translated into Greek in the last few centuries before Christ. Um, and um, the Greek translated uh, books that aren't in the Hebrew. Um, and they're the books that Protestants, uh, from the Reformation onwards, refer to as the Apocrypha. But Catholics include them in the Old Testament and call them the deuterocanonical books, which means they're in the canon of Scripture, but they're of secondary status. They're actually, they're treated more or less on the same level as all the other books. The books in question are a couple of books of wisdom, like the book of Proverbs, called um, the Teaching of Jesus Ben Sira, and the book, a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. Uh, then there are some uh, narrative books um, the book of Tobit and the book of Judith, for example. The books of the Maccabees, which are all about the kind of events that Jews remember at Hanukkah, um, and a number of other books, um, which are in the Greek Bible and therefore passed into the Latin Bible, which was translated from the Greek, but aren't in the Hebrew Bible. Well, and it, it's a, a difference between the churches. The Catholic Church accepts the longer Old Testament and Protestant churches the shorter one. Well, we're and going to been resolved. 
We are going to explore this further uh, when we come back. We're going to need to wrap things up, so please, okay. so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 532nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled KALA's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Terry Toppler. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. John Barton, Senior Research Fellow of Campion Hall, Oxford University, who talked with us about the Word, how we translate the Bible, and why it matters. The history buff for today's show was Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily the those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basuto proverb, Kautza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.